0: We pray. Father, we ask that as we look at this passage where Peter, Simon Peter, turns to Jesus in faith, where he sees for the first time that he's so much more than he thought he was, and looks to him and believes, the other disciples with him, Father, we pray that we would see from his conversion what it means to turn to Jesus in faith. That if any in here do not currently look to him, that they would that You would open their eyes as scales would be removed. They would see Him and believe. If any in here are deceived, and Father, they don't believe, they think of Jesus as a good add-on to their life, but they don't see Him as everything, as their hope and their righteousness. Father, that You would move in them. They would turn to Him. See Him for who He is. Themselves for who they are. And look to Him. Father, we pray that You would just help us to understand Your Word and rejoice in it. Help us to see who Jesus is in all His glory, and want to follow Him and walk after Him all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's a question just sort of to start. Have you ever, you ever struggled, with Have you struggled with what it means to be a Christian? Or struggled with what it means to be a Christian? Or struggled at least with knowing whether you're a Christian or not? Anybody ever struggle with that? Let me give you an example. I'm not sure when I became a Christian. I'm not sure. In other words, I don't know what my spiritual birthday was. You know, some of you guys have those? Like, this is my spiritual... I don't know. I don't know when that happened. I know I've always thought well of Jesus. Always. Always thought well of Him. Always agreed that what it says in the Bible about Him is true. I think I learned about it from some Hallmark special a Little House in the Prayer or something. But the point is, that's I always have. Since I was young... I even answered an altar call when I was in the sixth grade. I went down the aisle because I didn't want to go to hell, but I wasn't exactly sure what that all meant. I went to a youth group through high school, and at 18 years old, I at at the very least started living a moral life, although I, I thought I was following Jesus, and maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, I'm not sure. I was called to the ministry at about 25, I remember that distinctly. But I've often wondered when in that series of events throughout my life I actually became a Christian. Does anybody know what I mean by that? I I must have asked Jesus to save me like a thousand times. Right? I had some good experiences, but I never had the kind of experience, the kind of dramatic conversion experience that I often read about in Scripture. So I always wondered, when did I really become a Christian? And, and, And here's what I want to start off telling you. I I don't really think it matters that much, (laughs) since I know I'm one now. And yet, while it doesn't matter that much, I also recognize that in the New Testament, we read some pretty dramatic conversion stories, don't we? We actually read one today as we're reading about the conversion of Peter, Simon Peter. It's a pretty dramatic conversion story. But here's what I want to make sure you understand while Peter's conversion story was dramatic, Peter was still a mess. He really turned to Jesus in faith on this day, but don't think that from then on, Peter was just walking with the Lord, incomplete faith, never disobedient, never faithless. We know of three instances in which the Lord says some pretty harsh things about what Peter's done. For example, Peter tells the Lord, I don't think you should go to the cross, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Okay? That's not something you want to hear the Lord say to you. Later on, Peter denies Jesus three times. Right at the cross, right? Then Jesus resurrects. Peter's following preaches at Pentecost. And then if you go forward in history, you find out that the Apostle Paul had to rebuke the Apostle Peter. You read about it in Galatians because Peter was denying the Gospel by adding something to it so that he could be socially popular, incidentally. So we know while Peter is converted here, please don't think that once you have this dramatic conversion experience, or even if you haven't, that somehow because you don't always walk in faith in the way that you ought to, that that means you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying today. You got that so far? Qualification I want to put on there. However, with that said, Peter's conversion story is still very dramatic. And while our conversion stories may not be as dramatic as his, Luke tells us this story because he wants us to learn something from it. He's writing to Theophilus. If you remember at the very beginning of this Gospel, Luke begins it by saying uh, that he is writing in verse 3, for you, I'm writing an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and the reason I'm doing that Is why That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. In other words, I want you to believe, Theophilus. I know you've heard some things about Jesus. I know you've been taught some things, but I want to make sure you know who He is, so I'm writing this down so you believe. And he's writing this to Theophilus. And then to the audience that Theophilus would then pass it around to. He's telling the story of Jesus to Theophilus and seems to include... This conversion account of Peter sort of of to gently say to Peter, um, Do you believe, or excuse me, to Theophilus, Do you believe? Are you a disciple? Are you a Christian? See, because this is what happens when you're converted. I want you to understand what conversion really looks like, Theophilus. So I'm going to show it to you in the life of Peter. So what we can learn about. What we can learn about the necessary elements of true conversion, we can actually learn from Peter's conversion story in the Gospel of Luke. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. What are the necessary elements of true conversion that we learn from Peter's conversion? What are they? What do we see in Peter's turning to Jesus in faith that informs us as to what is necessary to someone becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ? To becoming a christian i'm going to give you four elements okay four elements of true conversion you ready there's four of them that we learn here first here's the first one in order to become a true christian truly converted you must hear the word of god hear that you must hear the word of god look at verse one of chapter five on one occasion While the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the Word of God. Notice the crowd is pressing in on Jesus because they want to hear the Word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This this is the Sea of Galilee. It's an area of the Sea of Galilee near Gennesaret, and that's why it's pointed to this way. And he's standing by the lake there, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. See, here's what happened at that point in time. When you fished, you fished in the dark at night. Okay? So what they would do is they'd get on their boats, they would go out, they would drop their nets at night when it's dark because the fish would come up closer to the top of the water. They would drop their nets, they would catch fish. That's what they would do all night around the lake or the sea, and then they would come in. They would dock the boats, bring in their catch of fish, and then they would wash their nets, have breakfast, turn in, try to get some rest and then the next night go out and start fishing again. That's what fishermen did. And that's what they're doing. Jesus is walking up on this scene with a crowd of people wanting to hear him preach. He's walking up, and that's, there's a the scene, and these fishermen, Peter who's among them, are out washing their nets. They've, done, they've gotten done with their work day, right? Now it's sometime in the morning, they're washing their nets, and Jesus and this crowd walk up. Verse 3, getting into one of the boats which was Simon's or Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Here's what's happening. The crowd is coming in pretty heavily on Jesus, okay? It's a large crowd. They're coming in pretty heavily on him, so he gets into one of the boats so that they can stand up as close to the beaches as they they can, and then he puts the boat out a little bit on the water so he can sort of create a natural amphitheater, and he can teach them. Sits down in the boat and starts to teach this crowd, and they're listening to the Word of God, and Peter's in the boat with them. And these people are there to hear the Word of God. And Peter's hearing this as well. Everyone around is there to listen to what God says. See, it's absolutely necessary to hear the Word of God if you're going to be saved. Absolutely necessary. People seem to understand this. Absolutely necessary to hear the Word of God. This is why you hear Paul tell Timothy in 2nd uh, Timothy he makes the comment to him in, in chapter 3 about the word of God he, he says this 2nd Timothy chapter 3 Paul's talking to Timothy and in verse 14 and he tells him but as for you continue in what you've learned and firmly believed "...knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Word of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And then Paul goes on to tell him, "If you're going to have a saving ministry, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the Judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom, preach the word." Told again and again, we have to preach the word. The word is what makes you wise to salvation. Romans chapter 10, Paul says something very similar when he's talking about the fact that he, he makes this statement in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. He says that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But how can they call on the one whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And he goes on says, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. It's absolutely necessary that someone hears the Word of God, which is the Gospel, if they're going to be saved. Absolutely necessary. That's why we preach the Word here. That's why I do that. Why do we preach the Word every day? Weak, just through books of the Bible because you need to hear it. Otherwise, you won't be saved. Otherwise, you won't grow in sanctification. That's holiness. Otherwise, you won't persevere in the faith. You need to hear the word of God. It is what God uses to save you and to sanctify you. That's what he uses. That's the power of God and salvation. Why does Paul say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel? And what's the gospel? A message, right? It's a message about Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. No one can be saved unless the Word's carried to them. That's why we study the Word of God in church. It's why we study it in our grace groups. That's why we teach it in our children's and youth ministry. It's also why we support planting churches here and among unreached peoples, so the Word of God can get out. No one can be saved if the Word of God is not being carried to them. The question always comes up inevitably, what about the noble noble savage, right? What about the noble savage in some place who's never heard the gospel? Listen, first let me just take away this whole idea. There is no such thing as a noble savage. No such thing. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hear that? All. Not some, not most, not just those who heard the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. Why does Paul say he has to preach the gospel when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The Jew first and then the Gentile. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Then he goes on, he tells us the problem. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God has been made plain to them. Hear that? Everyone universally knows about God and his righteousness and everyone universally presses that truth down and denies it and therefore the wrath of God rests on everyone universally everyone. That's why we take the gospel to them. Listen, if they only get condemned when the gospel shows up, then let's not take it there. Stop missions altogether. Jesus didn't come. What did he say? I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world. Why? Because the world was condemned already. There's no noble savages. We have to take the gospel to people because they're lost. That's why we send missionaries out. That's why we started Radius International, which is an organization that exists as a missions training center to raise up people, to acquire superfluency in language and culture so that they can go to unreached people groups and plant churches. That's why people pour out their life doing that. But let me be clear about this. While it's necessary to hear the Word of God to be saved, it isn't sufficient. You understand the distinction? It's necessary, but it isn't sufficient. In other words... Being present when the Word of God is preached or read isn't enough to save you. Lots of people hear the Word of God and aren't saved, don't they? Isn't that true? They hear the Word of God and they're not saved. So what else has to happen? That leads to our second point in true conversion. You must see the glory of Jesus. Hear that? You must see the glory of Jesus. Look at verse 4. And we had finished speaking... He said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master. Now, this is a term of affection and respect. He's not calling him Lord like I would speak to the Lord of glory, Lord, right? He's using a term of affection and respect, Master. Now, Peter's going to explain something to Jesus. You want us to pull out to sea a little bit and drop our nets in the middle of the day, right? It's not a good idea. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We couldn't find anything out there when it was dark. Do you really think we're going to find something when it's the middle of the day? I'm, I'm a fisherman. Jesus, I appreciate you. I respect you. I think highly of you. You're a great carpenter. I've seen some of the stuff you've done. I'm impressed, right? You can preach well. You can heal people. But, but, but I'm a fisherman. This is my profession We were fishing all night. We didn't take in anything. Do you not know that? But then, because of his respect, he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Wow, that's some interesting music going there. (laughs) Whoever's got it going. They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their, to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I and mean, what's happening here? See, Peter's heard the Word of God preached before. He's heard it. But he wasn't overwhelmed and changed by it. See, we can hear the Word over and over again. And it doesn't transform us until one day God grabs hold of us, right? Peter had seen miracles already. He had seen what Jesus can do and he still wasn't a believer. He'd heard what Jesus was preaching and still wasn't a believer. He looked up to Jesus. He saw benefit in following Jesus and in knowing him. But he didn't worship Jesus. He didn't see Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it's here that God opened Peter's blinded eyes to see who Jesus is. And we'll talk him in a little bit about how he did that with this miracle. But it's here that he did that, and, and here's what I want you to understand. That's what has to happen for true conversion to happen. You can hear the word over and over and over again, but until God opens your blinded eyes, until the scales fall off, you don't see. You don't see. This is what Paul says, in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He makes this comment talking about the ministry that they have by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. And he goes on and he says in verse 3, and if, even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, there's a veil in front of it. No one can see it. Even if the good news that we're preaching isn't able to be seen by people, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? To keep them. What does he want to do? He wants to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hear that? That's what happens. The average unbeliever, all unbelievers, are blinded. They can't see. They're like Peter a lot of times, though. And maybe some of you are in that category. You respect Jesus. You think well of Him. You like him to intervene in the areas where you feel particularly weak, but in the areas where you're strong, you got that covered. I've got that. All right? I don't need you for everything. I adore you. I respect you. I look up to you, but I don't worship you. You're not my Savior and Lord. See, that's where Peter was. Maybe some of you were there. I think a lot of people who have heard the gospel are there. But you can't see Jesus as less than the Bible says he is. You can't. He can't be whoever you want Him to be. Hear that? Let me give you an example of this. I, recently, there have been a whole bunch of doctrinal debates about the Trinity within the Christian church and about the God-man. Is Jesus fully God and fully man? What a, there are actual doc in Christian seminaries that's happening, incidentally. And not liberal ones. Is the Trinity really all that important? Look, these aren't questions just for egghead theologians. Okay? This isn't just a question for an egghead theologian. These questions matter. And they matter because they present to you a very different view of who Jesus is. See, Jesus is not a concept that we can redefine however we like. He lived in history. He's a real man. He's a real God-man. And He doesn't take kindly to being redefined. He can't be conformed to whatever you want. The Jesus of the Bible saves alone. Okay, and our preeminent problem is that we don't see Jesus for who he is, and thus, as a result of that, we never see ourselves for who we really are. And I can guarantee you this, once we see Jesus clearly, once that happens to you, you will see yourselves more clearly. In fact, that's often how you know you've seen him. Know how you've seen Jesus more clearly? Because when you do, you recognize what a hopeless wreck you are without him. That was true for Isaiah as well, Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Just keep your hands there because Jason read from this passage, but I want you to see the parallels here. Isaiah is a prophet of God, and we see really Isaiah's conversion story in Isaiah chapter 6, as we see with Peter in Luke chapter 5. Very similar. He sees the Lord, falls, and says he's helpless without him, and then the Lord sends him out on mission, as he does with Peter. But look at this in the year Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And this is extremely important to understand this context. King Uzziah had been king for decades. He was trusted. He was well thought of. He kept the people feeling secure. The king was dead. And we don't understand that because we don't live in a land with a king. We live in a land with presidents. And sometimes we wish their, ter- short, their terms would be shorter. Right? But that's where we live okay in congresses but we don't live in a land with kings and when you have a king who's taking care of you and they die you start to feel insecure who's going to care for us now and in the context isaiah says in the year that king uzziah died i saw the lord sitting upon a throne do you hear that contrast the king is no longer on his throne yes he is the lord is on his throne and where is he? High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which means burning ones. They're on fire with the holiness of God. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. These are angels who were ever in the presence of God. They have to cover their own faces from His holiness. With two, they covered His face. And with two, He covered His feet. And with two, He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, 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 Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, listen to what happens to Isaiah. He sees the Lord in all His glory. He sees Him as He is, the Holy One. And what happens? And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See what happens to him? That's what happens with, G- with Peter, with Jesus in the boat, isn't it? He's out there. Master, it's, we tried to fish last night. Didn't work out. This is the middle of the day. It's not going to work out. But I'll drop the nets because I respect you. Drops the nets. Pick up all these fish. So much that two boats are are filled, almost sinking. And Peter falls to Jesus' knees. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What's happened to Peter? He's recognized that Jesus is more than just a nice guy who followed around, who said things he liked to hear, who healed people he liked to see heal. He recognized he was a Lord of glory. He saw him for who he was. And he suddenly saw himself for who he really is. That's what happens to Isaiah, isn't it? And that God sends Isaiah out on mission, but he heals him first. He blesses him with grace first. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. Why did he touch his mouth? Because what's he talking about when he's talking about a sin? I'm a man of unclean lips. Among a people of unclean lips, you're right, you're unclean. And so I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. So he touches his mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And you'll see this happen in Peter's life. Depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. And the Lord tells him, don't be afraid. This is the exact same thing that's happening here. And then we see with Isaiah, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. See, he's sent out on mission to follow the Lord. Now turn back to Luke chapter 5. Because see, while seeing Jesus for all he is, is going to be shown in more than just the fact that you recognize you're a hopeless wreck. It's, It's never less than that. It's going to be more when you see him for all who who he is. If that hasn't happened yet, when God removes a scale from your eyes, and I pray he does today, you see him for who he is, it's going to, at the very least, first and foremost, reveal to you what a wreck you are. But it's going to do more than that, which leads to our third point. You must recognize and repent of your total depravity. That You must recognize and repent of your total depravity. That means the fact that all of you is fallen, right? All of you. You're not just fallen with regard to your heart and sinful and corrupt. Every part of your nature is corrupt. It doesn't mean you're as sinful as you can be. You're not Hitler yet. But it means that every part of you is fallen and corrupt. And you must recognize it and repent of it. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that had, they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So here's, here's Peter, Simon Peter and all his business partners and a couple of the other disciples who see this catch of fish And they're stunned and they realize Jesus is more than we thought. And and it's an awkward response, isn't it? You would think if you had a fishing business, okay? Because fish means money, right? You have a fishing business and Jesus takes you out in the boat and he says, Drop the nets into the water. And you're out in the fishing business and you drop the nets in the water and they fill up with so many fish that both boats are about to sink. Why in the world do you think Peter turns and goes, Depart from me, O Lord? I'm a sinful man. Why doesn't he say, Become one of our partners in the business? We will become rich men. Is that what you'd expect? It's not what he says. He sees us and recognizes what a mess he is because for the first time, Peter sees who Jesus really is. And he's thrown to his knees. And because in seeing Jesus clearly, he sees himself more clearly. It's an interesting miracle, isn't it? Because all the other miracles, if you notice, pretty much universally are for people who are in desperate need. This guy's blind. This guy's lame. This guy's dead. These people are in desperate need. These people are hungry. But the fishing miracle's different, isn't it? They don't need a bunch of fish. They're doing fine. We don't have any indications. I mean, they had a bad night. Big deal. So why does Jesus do this? I mean, in this case, why does Jesus sort of break his normal pattern of why he does miracles and do this one? It's because he's teaching something specific, isn't he? He's demonstrating to Peter this fundamental understanding. See, Peter, you follow me when you don't know something. Or you follow me when you think you're weak in some area. In those areas, you'll follow me. But if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to follow me in the areas where you think you know better. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to follow me where you're strong, not just where you're weak. So you're going to have to bow the knee to me in areas where you think you're strong. You have to recognize your complete need, just not just some area we feel weak, but our whole life has to be given to him. Do you understand what's happening with Peter here? Jesus has just shown Peter, I'm strong, stronger than you even in the areas you think you're strong. Even the areas where you think you're strong. You couldn't catch any fish last night in the dark. I'm right here in the middle of the day dropping some nets and filling your boats. I'm the Lord of everything. I'm not just the Lord of the things you want me to be the Lord of, I'm Lord of the things you think you should still have control of. You better get a clear picture of who I am. That's what Jesus is saying. And Peter does. The scales fall from his eyes. So let me ask you guys this What about you? I mean, do you see Jesus as useful in, in some parts of your life? You know, um, he's good for this, but I have control of this area. I mean, do you like some things he has to say, but you don't really want to submit to everything he says because you don't want to recognize his lordship in all that he says in his word? I, I like some of what's in that Bible. I'll submit to some of it, but that stuff over there, I don't trust that. I, I, I have a better idea. My way's better. See, do you see your complete need and recognize Jesus' complete sufficiency to meet that need? So that's the question. It's not until then that conversion happens. See, Peter's recognizing that Jesus is more than a good master for areas of his life he can't control. He's recognizing Jesus is Lord of every area of his life. He's recognizing Jesus is Lord and Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Hear that? And at this, Peter falls to his knees and says, depart from me. Forgive me is another way of saying that. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm broken and sinful. And Jesus responds with, don't be afraid. See, Peter's afraid. He's afraid. He wanted Jesus to depart from him. He's a broken man. He saw Jesus for all who he is. And Jesus tells him, don't fear. I'll forgive you. You're going to be a fisher of men. Come follow me. See, Jesus was after Peter, wasn't he? He wanted Peter to be saved, so he gets into Peter's boat, and he says, take off. Let's go out a little deeper and drop the nets. And he sort of corners Peter and deals with him, doesn't he? he? says, Peter, there's an area of your life where you still think you're the Lord because you still haven't seen me. You still don't know who I am. And I'm going to show you immense kindness. I'm going to show you kindness like you've never seen before. I'm going to fill your nets with so many fish your boats can barely stay afloat. And that's going to lead you to repentance. And that's what happens, doesn't it? It's the kindness of God was meant to lead you to repentance. That's what happens in the life of Peter, which leads to our fourth point. You must receive Jesus. You must receive Jesus with a living faith. Hear that? You must receive him with a living faith. Look at verse 10 and 11, or really the second half of verse 10 and verse 11 chapter 5 it said and jesus said to simon do not be afraid from now on you will be catching men you hear what he's doing here with him don't be afraid that's where peter's at right he's afraid he's seen jesus now he recognized who he was arguing with about the fish and he says don't be afraid that's a gracious way of saying i forgive you I'm meeting you right where you recognize your greatest need is. You recognize you're unholy and not worthy to be in my presence, and I'm meeting that need. Right now, I'm taking care of it. Don't be afraid. And then he tells him, From now on, you'll be catching men. It's, not only am I forgiving you and saving you, not only am I forgiving you and saving you, but you're going to follow me from now on, and you're going to catch men with me. You're going to let them know about me. And they believed, and they followed. Look at verse 11. And when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. And this is interesting to hear. They believed, and thus they followed. Hear that? That's not an optional part of believing. The, that's the natural fruit of faith. A living faith doesn't just agree. A living faith trusts to the extent that it follows. See, there's two errors that we make with regard to faith. You guys know that? Regarding to what faith is, two big errors we make. And let, let me tell you what those are so just clear. Error one, we make more of faith than we should. Hear that? First error. We make more of faith than we should. And we, and we do this by making it meritorious. In other words, in some way, faith earns me favor with God. Here, here's, we treat it like God will forgive me because I was virtuous enough to believe. So, so how do we demonstrate that? Well, here, here's how it looks. You challenge someone on what they believe about God. And then they, the response comes, my faith is sincere. How can you question me? And then we sort of immediately retract, right? I, I, I saw a popular pastor. I won't name him. Um, but he has books you've heard of. The latest one, Every Day of Friday, which is ridiculous for a load of reasons. But anyway, he, he made this comment when he was asked on TV if um, if those who don't believe in Jesus, they don't believe in Jesus. If they still have faith, will they be saved? Faith in what? He doesn't ask that question. Or what if they're an atheist, but they're sincere about it? Literally, that question was asked. He said, "Well, if they're sincere, then they're saved." As if faith is somehow valuable all by itself, and faith is not valuable all by itself. Do you hear that? It's the object of your faith that matters. It's what you believe or whom you believe. Look, the terrorists who flew planes in the Twin Towers had sincere faith, didn't they? And they're burning in hell because of their sincerity. See, it's not faith that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. Your faith merits you nothing. Jesus merits you everything. Second error. This is the opposite one. We make too much of faith. The second one is this. We make less of faith than we should. Hear that? We make less of faith than we should. And we do this by turning faith into mere agreement. We turn it into mere agreement. Over here we make it virtuous, like it's good all on its own. Over here we turn it into mere agreement. We treat it like God will forgive me because I agree all this stuff is true. Why is that a problem? Because mere agreement is dead faith. Hear that? It isn't trust. It is not trust. James 2, James actually deals with this in verse 14 when he says, you believe there's one God? You do well. Right? You can hear the sarcasm dripping from James' tongue, right? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So what? You agree. Satan agrees with the facts of the Bible. Do you know that? What happens when the demons show up and when Jesus shows up and the demons are confronting Him. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Because they know the story. They know what's happening. They agree with it. Agreement isn't saving. True faith is birthed out of seeing Jesus for all He is and seeing the truth about yourself and trusting in Him as your hope and your righteousness and your life. True faith is found in resting in God's favor in Jesus. True faith sees who Jesus is, who I am, and then sees that he loved me anyway. He loved me enough to die on the cross for my sins so I can be forgiven and counted righteous and adopted as a son of God. See, true faith says with Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor I respect, says this, yes, God counts my sins, but he does not count them against me. Rather, he counts my sins against his son. See, true faith then goes on to work. Hear that? It goes on to work. True faith, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, works itself out in love. But here's the thing. The working in love doesn't earn you favor with God. All the working in love does is demonstrate that your faith is alive and not dead. That's why the reformers of the Protestant Reformation would make the statement. They were fond of saying we're justified by faith alone. That means we're forgiven and declared righteous by faith alone. In Christ alone. Okay? But... Not by faith that remains alone. That's why Luke points out that Jesus forgave Peter and called him into ministry at the same time. Jesus said, I forgive you, you're mine, and now you'll become a fisher of men. You'll tell others about me. See, that's what living faith does. It's filled with gratitude. Because you know you're guilty. You see that God gave you grace in Jesus, and then you can't help but do anything else but respond with gratitude. That's what living faith looks like. And you want to tell other people about him. Look at what the Lord has done for me. Living faith leads people to walk away from everything and follow Jesus as the disciples did. Nothing mattered more to them than following Jesus because they saw who he is and they saw who they are and how he loves them and forgives them anyway. So so what about you? I mean, are you there yet? Are you a real Christian? I'm not asking, are you a person who never sins Or are you a person who never falls into serious sin? Because we see Peter did it three times at least. But are you a person who recognizes that Jesus is everything? That you're nothing apart from him? And and that he will forgive you if you look to him? He'll count you righteous. He'll adopt you as his child. And you have nothing left to do but just respond with gratitude. Gratitude. Are you someone who's seen Jesus, responded to him, and trusted him with everything? Not just the areas where you're weak, but the areas where you're strong. You just said, I'll walk away from all of it for you. Or are you someone who has for years heard the word and agreed it's true, but's never really seen Jesus? Never really recognized him as the Lord of glory and your only hope? Never seen that you need him and that he is gloriously good and better than life itself? If so, if you're that person, I pray that he opens your eyes even now. I pray he removes the scales from your eyes so you can see him clearly. And if that's happening to you, you need to tell someone. You need to tell someone. Come tell me. Tell one of your friends who brought you. But you need to tell someone. If it's already happened to you, like it's happened to me, then go tell others the gospel so God can show himself to them as well. Tell them about him. Invite people to church to hear the Word of God. Invite them to one of your grace groups to hear the Word of God. Take them out to lunch and tell them Have you ever seen Jesus for all he is? Not not this character you hear about in American history or American stories or that you hear about from Christian people or that you see a Christmas poem about on Fox News during the Christmas season or any of that stuff. Have you ever seen him? for all he is where you're willing to forsake everything and look like a fool because you see him for all he is and you see yourself for what a wreck you are and you can't do anything but be thankful and filled with gratitude and desire to walk away from anything he wants you to walk away from because you've seen him and he's yours and you're his Does that happened to you it's happened to me that's what you tell him God will do that in you. Just ask, you to, ask Him to do it. Ask Him, do that in me. He will, and you'll be saved. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would help us to be a people who see you, who recognize that Jesus is not just a good moral teacher, not just a nice guy, not just someone who teaches some things we like or does some things we like, but that He is the Lord, that He is holy. Holy, holy, and the whole earth is filled with His glory. See Him for who He is. And Father, that we would see ourselves for who we are as a result. And that we would repent. Repent of our self-righteousness and our sin. That we would turn to Jesus for forgiveness. You'd give us a living faith so that we, we love You. So that we act out in our trust in a way that honors You with great gratitude for what you've done. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.